The Real Estate Sessions podcast is sponsored by AdWorks. AdWorks makes digital advertising for real estate brilliantly simple. Promote your brands, promote your listings, learn more at adworks.com. That's A-D-W-E-R-X.com, adworks.com. The number one question by far from the newer investors that come in is where do I start? That is always a question, where do I start? Now, unfortunately, a lot of times these people, they're watching HGTV and they get fantasized about mm-hmm. the sexiness of flipping houses and all that kind of stuff. And what I try to tell everybody is that that's not a good place to start if you're new to investing. I would highly discourage that. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions and join industry leaders as they share their stories and offer tips and advice to real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Risser of Chicago Title, Arizona. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 45 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. I'm excited today. We're going to go in a different direction, someplace we haven't gone before. We have an, a real estate investor today on the show, and not just any investor. It's Greg Slaughter. Uh, his company is We All Win Solutions, and I've known Greg for a few years now. Uh, very interesting guy. He's done a lot of different things in the world of investing, and I can't wait to dig into him. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Well, good afternoon, Bill. Thanks for having me. Sure. Now, you uh, you're, grew up in Arizona, correct? Yes, I did. I was born and raised in Arizona. I'm an Arizona native, one of the few. Yeah. Was it What part of the state did you grow up in? I was actually born and raised in Tucson, Arizona, and I went there, like I said, I grew up there my entire life, went to the University of Arizona. Now, I only went there for two years, but actually, I've been going there my, my entire life, but I only went to school there for two years. I'm a huge Wildcat fan, so bear down, Wildcats. Oh, boy. Okay, we'll have to keep going, I guess, with this interview. I knew that was coming. <laughs> so, well, you, you knew that was coming. You yeah. had to know that was coming. Oh, you I, knew me. <laughs> I did. I did. And you have, look, you, there are other, I've had other Wildcats on the podcast where uh, we let everyone participate. So I'm glad you got that out of the way. Good. So um, tell me, I'll tell you, tell me for the, for those, for those that aren't too familiar with Tucson, because we have listeners around the country, kind of describe Tucson, because it is definitely not Phoenix. Yeah, no, it's about a quarter the size of Phoenix. I mean, Phoenix right now, I believe we're around 4.3 million, 4.4 million. Tucson just went over 1 million, so it's a quarter the size. It's really a little college town, if you can call a million people little, but it really is a college town. And so that's why everybody that has born and raised in Tucson is a huge Wildcat fan, because that's really what Tucson's all about, is the University of Arizona. You know, whenever they go to a playoff game or Final Four or anything like that, the entire city shuts down. It's very unique and it's very, very cool. You do not see that here in Phoenix at all. No, there's a whole lot more going on up here. And uh, and to be quite honest, quite a few people from Tucson end up living here. Right, Greg? Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> and I'm one of them. <laughs> right. right. So usually what happens is they're born and raised there, they grow up there, and then they move away for for their life, for jobs and money and that kind of stuff, and they end up going back to Tucson to retire. So you really get a lot of the younger and a lot of the older in Tucson, not a whole lot of in between. Yeah, that makes sense. I've been there quite a few times, and that's a pretty good read on that area. Really pretty. I mean, some of that stuff south of Tucson, that Green Valley, Tubac, I mean, it's just crazy pretty down there, Santa Cruz Valley. I think that does that have that right. And then in the mountains, Mount Lemon, to the to the kind of the north of town is just um, unbelievable. So it's it's a cool little part yeah, of the no, Mount Lemon was awesome. I remember that yeah. growing up. And you want snow? It was only a, an hour and a half away. Just go up to the top of the mountain and play in the snow. Yeah, that's great. 
you've been in real estate. I think you said you got licensed. We talked earlier right around 2000, but you know, you were doing some other things in corporate America before you entered the world of real estate. What were you doing before real estate? I was a business consultant and I was mostly working with the McDonald's corporation. I actually started with McDonald's back in uh, 1983 as, when I was a teenager. It's the only application I've ever completed in my entire life. I became a crew person. I was 17 because I had to get a car, and that's the only way my parents said I was going to get one is if I got a job and paid for it. So I had to fill out an application, completed it, got hired, and lo and behold, I went up through the ranks, and I was really fortunate. I had some kind of drive in me. I don't know what it was or why, but um, because of that, I forced myself into management position very early on, and I even got the opportunity to run my own McDonald's restaurant. When I was 19 years old, I took over a McDonald's restaurant down there in Tucson, Earlier I'd mentioned I'd only gone to college for two years. Well, that's why, because at the end of my sophomore year in college, they offered me uh, my own McDonald's restaurant, and I'm like, I think I'll take that <laughs> rather than continue going through school. And then I continued to work through the ranks, and by the time I retired from corporate America in 2002, I was a business consultant slash training consultant, and I was really responsible for most of the western United States. For, for McDonald's, for like opening new stores yeah. and, and training and that sort of thing? Yeah. Wow, that's great. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I worked with all the franchisees and on the uh, management teams and helped um, open up brand new stores, all that kind of, anything and everything involved with McDonald's I did, basically. I have a quick question. Will you still stop by there for dinner every now and then? <laughs> you know what? I will still eat the breakfast every now and then, but I have to admit, I have not eaten McDonald's probably lunch or dinner or anything like that. And I don't think I've eaten there since I left, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but but not because it's anything against McDonald's. I just don't eat fast food at all. I can literally count on probably two hands the number of fast food restaurants I've eaten at in the past five years. Gotcha. Well, that, that makes sense. Go fast food restaurants. That makes sense. So, what was the uh, what what got you interested in real estate? Well, it's kind of a funny story because I'm one of those individuals that knew that I wanted to do real estate when I was a teenager. That's how young it actually started. And uh, when I got that job at McDonald's, the very first thing I ever purchased, of course, because I was a teenager, was a stereo. You know, you always got to have your stereo, right? Yeah. But once you got the stereo, then I actually saved up money and I went to a real estate seminar. And I believe this was back in 1985. And it was called, it was a Robert Allen Nothing Down Seminar. And back then, nothing down was never heard of. I mean, nowadays, you know, it's all over the place, and everybody knows what it is. But back then, nobody knew, knew what it was, and I was an 18-year-old kid, saved my money, went to this conference, and I not only was I, was I 18, but I looked like I was 14, because uh, I was maybe all of five, six at the time, probably 135 pounds soaking wet. I, I grew up really late, so I, I was a late bloomer. So I remember at the conference that they the uh, – Robert was actually making fun of me, not making fun of me, but was pointing me out as far as how young I was there, and I was there by myself, and where's my parents, and that kind of stuff, even though I was 18. So I finished this conference and seminar, and I knew I, I was going to get into real estate. So I was all, I had this drive, of course, you just left the seminar, I'm going to go buy a house, nothing down, I'm gonna, I got to do this. So I went into a real estate office, and back then, obviously, they didn't have the internet, and there was no MLS or anything like that. They had what, they had like these phone books. And that's, that was the MLS with the phone book. And they came out once a month, and then all the properties were posting this. 
So I went into this real estate office, and I remember speaking to these two ladies. Now, at the time, I called them older ladies, but looking back, they probably were in their 30s, but right. that was older to me since I looked like I was 14. Right. <laughs> and, and to make a long story short, they basically laughed me out of the office. They just said, you know, here's this punk kid. You're not going to buy anything, nothing down. You don't know what you're doing. So I left with my tail between my legs, <laughs> left that real estate office, but I, wasn't, uh, I hadn't given up yet. So I decided that, well, no one's ever going to do business with me if I look like I'm 14 years old. So the only way I'm ever going to be able to do this is if I have to do it over the phone. So I went and grabbed the Sunday newspaper. And back then, you know, there's a lot of ads that are for sale by owner. And you could just call. And I decided if I could just call somebody and do a deal over the phone where they never see me, then that's how I'll get my first investment property. So that's what I did. I attempted to call all these individuals. And I actually got a hold of one. It was a duplex in Tucson. And I negotiated the deal over the phone. And the deal was, it wasn't a nothing down deal, but it was a low down deal. It was only a couple hundred bucks. And I was going to be able to live in one side of the duplex. And the other side was already rented out. And the rent was going to cover the entire mortgage. And it was going to actually leave me, I think if I remember correctly, it's like 50 to $70 a month extra on top of that. So I was basically going to live rent free and have some spending money every month. And I negotiated this over the phone. The only challenge was, is I had spent all my money on the seminar, so I had no more money. None of my friends had any money because, well, they were all 18 years old and teenagers right. and they didn't, have, they didn't have any money. So then I couldn't get the money. I went to ask my parents for the money and they wouldn't give me the money either. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to purchase the property and I was so discouraged and so distraught that I basically gave up and I quit at that time. However, it was always in the back of my mind that that's what I wanted to do. I just wasn't ready for it yet. And then I went and poured all my energy and direction into McDonald's and went that route. But in the back of my head, I always wanted to do real estate. And through the years with McDonald's Corporation, they relocated me from Tucson to Las Vegas in 1994. And then from 94 to 99, I was in Las Vegas. And then when they relocated me from Las Vegas to here in Phoenix, that's when in 1999, I decided to keep the property we were living in as a rental property. And that's how I got my very first rental property was in 1999, which was 15 years later after I went to my first real estate seminar. And that's when I really started getting into real estate because at this point, I knew I was old enough to do it. I knew I could do it. And that's when I really started getting into real estate again was in 99. So in 99, you've got your first property. You're, you're here in Phoenix now. My guess is you bought a place in Phoenix. When did you actually then get your license to then start doing it on a more regular basis? Uh, that's kind of a funny story. When I came here in 99, I had my first rental property that we left in Las Vegas, and then I decided that uh, I was making decent money in corporate America, that I wanted to pick up some more investment properties here, more rental properties. So I started calling real estate agents, trying to get them to, you know, to trying to buy another investment property. And I ended up firing like six agents and probably like three weeks because they just didn't understand how to work with investors. They kept wanting me to get into their car and drive around and look at properties. And from an investor's point of view, I don't need to go look at the properties. I don't care. It's an investment. I only care about the numbers. And they were having a really hard time understanding that concept. And so I got so frustrated that one day I came home and I told my wife, you know, I've had it with real estate agents. I never want to talk to another one for the rest of my life. I'm just going to go get a real estate license myself. And that's how the process started. Ironically, at the time, my wife said, you know what, I'll just go get a license too. So my wife and I actually got real estate licenses at the same time. This was in early 2000. 
I had no intention of being a quote unquote realtor. I only bought it for I only got it for investing purposes. And so did you you um, did you hang your license someplace then you know and and work from yes, we an hung our license. We hung our license at the time. We interviewed a bunch of offices. I was still working corporate America, but obviously, you know, you have to hang your license somewhere. So we actually hung it with uh, Keller Williams over at Ahwatukee. And then I continued working corporate America and I was just buying rental properties. My wife then at that point in time went to become a quote unquote real estate agent and work with some clients. Okay. And then uh, eventually, you decide you're going to retire from the corporate world, that you see opportunities uh, in real estate, and if you're going to fulfill that wish of that 18-year-old kid, when did that happen? Yes, I left corporate America in 2002. When I left, I actually gave them a one-year notice. Uh, wow. So I gave them plenty of notice when I left, and nobody actually believed I was leaving at the time because they didn't think I was going to actually do it. But I was like, no, I'm going to do this. But I was so driven. I knew that's what I wanted to do my entire life, that I was going to do it. And uh, my wife wasn't even on board at the time. It caused a lot of friction between us. But I had, I had decided in my own mind that I had waited for so long to do this that it was now or never and it was getting done and I couldn't take corporate America anymore just the politics uh, it was just it was getting crazy at the office with all the politics that was involved so it was a combination of I knew I wanted to do real estate and I was sick and tired of doing the politics and at the same time of course that's when 9-11 happened and I was doing a lot of traveling and traveling after 9-11 became a nightmare and it was a combination of those three things. I just said, I'm done. I'm out of here. I love your story. That's great. But now I want to get into the nitty gritty of what you do. Like I said in the intro, you're the first you know, pure investor that I've had on the podcast. And I want to ask you a lot of you know, very specific questions. You know, I, I ran a branch for 10 years and worked with a lot of investors and met a lot of different kinds of people. And I think you know what I mean. <laughs> some were <laughs> some are very ethical about what they done, what how they work their business, and some others weren't. I'll just leave it at that. Let's let's start with this this first question because you know I'm so curious about how this works. As as the real estate market runs through its cycles, and inevitably there are these cycles that it runs through. You really have to be able to pivot and understand where you're headed and what you need to be doing in your business, right? So. Talk about that, and what do you monitor to make sure you don't get caught in the wrong place? Absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that investors make, actually, as they decide on a quote-unquote strategy, and then they just stick with the strategy regardless of anything that's going on, because that's all that they know. I, I, I'm a, I believe the exact opposite. You've got to always have a pulse on the market. You need to understand exactly where the market is, where it's at in the cycle, and one of the best ways that I do that is actually being a member of the, of the Azria here. And so every single month I go to those meetings and Alan, who runs those meetings, does a great job of give, gives the updates on all the numbers every month, et cetera. So you can get a really good feel for the pulse of what's going on in the market. And then you've got to be able to adjust. Uh, I mean, I, I know you've known me for years. And through those years, you've seen me adjust multiple times based on the market. You know, one point I'll be doing rent-to-owns because that's what the market will offer, and then I moved immediately right into flips because those were – I like to take the low-hanging fruit. So whatever the, whatever the market is going to give me, I'm going to take. I don't want to work real hard. I don't want to sound lazy, but I would rather just go outside and pick the low-hanging fruit. So I will adjust accordingly to the market. Right, and that's your advantage. Um, whereas someone else only does fix and flips, they can't take advantage of these other opportunities as quickly and easily as you can, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, if you just try to do one strategy, 
you will do really well in one market, but the minute that market adjusts, good luck. Right. You're, you're, you're sunk. You know, when I first met you, it was, I think it was at Academy Mortgage on Southern. I remember you and your wife were there and I, it was an investor kind of a get together. Maybe I was teaching a class, uh, maybe it was Evernote or something, but I was intrigued by what you were doing and it was that rent to own strategy you were talking about. Can, can you tell us about that process and, and, you know, is acquisition of properties for that a whole different model from say a flip or a hold? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Well, as far as the strategy to acquire the properties, it's going to pretty much be the same because you just got to find the opportunities and go negotiate with the home with the homeowners to get the properties. Now, obviously, the numbers are going to adjust depending upon the strategy that you're using. But yeah, no, I did a lot of rent-to-owns back in early 2010. Is probably when I did the most of them. It was back in that market because the market. At that point, the market had tanked, and then it started going up a little bit, and then it was going back down a little bit. And we were picking up most of our properties through short sales. Uh, I, I did well over 300 short sales that I was involved with because we'd go out there, find the homeowners that needed, you know, needed help, they needed to short sell their house, and we'd actually negotiate the short sale and then actually buy the short sell ourselves. And then seven, eight, and early nine we were able to you know, do same-day flips and that kind of stuff with the short sales. Well, when that market went away, and then at the same time when the market started going back down, you really don't want to be flipping properties in a market that's going south. So, so I moved into rent-to-own because there was a lot of opportunity in that market, and we did you know, several dozen of those in a very short amount of time because there was a lot of people that had short sales on their record and stuff, and they couldn't go buy a house. They didn't want to rent, and there was really nothing wrong with them other than the fact that they got caught upside down. They're good people that got stuck in a bad situation. And to me, that was low-hanging fruit that we wanted to provide a solution for. So that's what we did. But then at the end of 2010, the market changed again, and that's when the prices started to uh, appreciate again. And then we moved directly into, into the fix and flips. And we did dozens of those in 2011 because the market was just ripe for it. For a while there, the county courthouse auctions were just the rage. Uh, were you ever a part of that scene, or um, you know, did you kind of shy away from that? Yeah, well, I was a part of it for a small uh, section of time. Unfortunately, when I got involved with it, so I have been to a couple of auctions, and I had a business partner at one point, and he was going to the auction. So we did pick up some properties at the auction. Unfortunately, what happened was, all the heads you know, the hedge funds came into Phoenix and just started buying up everything. And you cannot compete against hedge funds. So we were only there, there for a very short amount of time. Again, I, don't, I want to go with the low-hanging fruit, and I'm not about to sit there and compete against hedge funds that have you know, millions and millions of dollars. It just wasn't logical or made any sense to me to go that route, so we quickly got out of there. Let's get to the uh, the financial side of being an investor. You, you came out of corporate America, and you were in this early, so you obviously were you had some of your own money you're playing with. But did you also find other sources of money? And, and if, if you did, is that something you help others figure out how to do? Because it seems like that's part of the issue is for some people is how do I finance this lifestyle where I can go out there and acquire and acquire and, and, and rehab or whole or whatever? Well, first of all, when I left corporate America, I did have a little bit of money, but not a lot. So actually at that point in time, I did become a real estate agent for a short while, for about three to four years. I did do that so I could generate some cash to continue the investing. So I did do that for a short while. Uh, that said, 
one of the biggest challenges of being an investor is that you always either have too many deals and not enough money or you have too much money and not enough deals. Okay. It's a constant teeter-totter going back and forth and I don't care how long you do this, you will always just go back and forth between the two because the markets are always constantly adjusting and then your access to money is always constantly adjusting. So yes, I am always constantly looking for properties and at the same time always constantly looking for, for private money. And, and how do you find that private money? Well, there's really two avenues to do that. You can do that within the real estate circles and outside the real estate circles. You could easily raise money in the real estate circles if you understand how to network. There's a lot of networking groups, especially here in Phoenix, and I'm assuming it's the same across the country, that there's a lot of money out there right now, and they need to place it. And so if you're good at what you do and you're good at networking, you can easily get that money. So the good news is it's plentiful and it's easy to find. Unfortunately, the bad news with that money is you're going to pay more for it because they're in the real estate circles and they will always want higher returns on their cash. So if you go outside the real estate circle, the benefits there is that you can get much lower uh, requests from them as far as what they want for returns. Uh, the downfall of that is obviously it takes a little bit more work to get into those networking circles and that kind of stuff. But if you know what you're doing and you can network and you can get outside of real estate, and once you get some connections out there, then you can just live off the referrals as well. How important um, was the Internet for you, uh, you know, throughout this process? It was very important, when I was, especially when I was first starting out. Uh, it was critical to the marketing. I think anybody that's starting out in, in investing, it's very critical because obviously you, you need to go find home sellers. If you want to be successful, you got to find home sellers. And when home sellers get in trouble and they need to sell the house, most of the time they're going to jump onto the internet. And so if you're not there, you're not going to get you're not, you're not going to the opportunity to get those properties. So yeah, I've spent a lot of money on marketing and to draw them to websites and that kind of stuff. I don't do so much of that anymore uh, just simply because of the stage where I'm at investing but through the years I spent you know tens of thousands of dollars in marketing and driving them through websites and you're talking about pay-per-click campaigns and just having the right domains and all that standard stuff there's no magic secret to it or secret sauce to it you just had to be there yep all of the above I've done anything and everything uh, we did uh, Google AdWords we did at one point I own close to 200 domain names you know, in my world, people always say, well, I want to get leads online. I go, there's only a couple of ways to do it. <laughs> pick pick your poison. This is what you're going to do. So right. good. Yeah. yeah. Nowadays, nowadays, Facebook is the magic. Right. So yeah. uh, we, we do a little bit on Facebook. We don't do a lot because, like I said, I don't do a lot of marketing right now. But we do do some marketing on Facebook. It's, it's uh, you know, a lot cheaper and you know, a lot of times free, depending upon how you do it. Right. And you're still, you know, you're still driving those leads off Facebook, though, to one of your websites, right? And that's where you're capturing their yes. information. Yeah. I think yes. people, people don't yes. understand that sometimes. They think it's all happening inside Facebook. It's just, it's a great place to be super hyper-targeted with your message, but you still got to move them off to a place that, that still gets their name and email address and hopefully phone number. So. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to capture their information. Yeah. And more importantly, you got to capture why they want to sell. Right. Um, you you run an East Valley Investor Group. I know that Anna, one of you know sales exec I've worked with for a long time at Chicago Title, is um, involved with you with that. I've been to a few of those sessions, and you got a few people that have been there for a long time. But you must have you know the newcomers that kind of filter into your group. What are what are the most common questions you get from somebody who's interested in you know, getting started in investing? Right. 
at this point we're you know we're into our third year and have over 300 people involved with that group now that come every month and so I, I do get the opportunity to speak to a lot of different people and probably the number one question by far from the newer investors that come in is where do I start that is always a question where do I start now unfortunately a lot of times these people they're watching HGTV and they get fantasized about mm -hmm. the sexiness of flipping houses and all that kind of stuff and what I try to tell everybody is that that's not a good place to start if you're new to investing. I would highly discourage that. What I do tell everybody is I think the best thing for anybody that's new to investing is you've got to get really good at two things. And those two things, the only way you're going to do that is through wholesaling. So I think everybody should start with wholesaling. And the two things that you've got to get really good at is, one, creating opportunities. I like to call them opportunities, so basically where you find your motivated sellers. And then the second part is, is it doesn't matter how many motivated sellers you can find. If you don't have the skills, the people skills, the communication skills, the listening skills, in order to convert that opportunity into an actual deal. Unfortunately, what I see in real estate is there's a lot of emphasis on the marketing, 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 and, and generating those opportunities. But there's very little to zero on the communication, the people skills required to convert those opportunities into deals. And so we try to spend a little bit of time focusing on that, and that is what I believe is, is what most new investors should really focus hard on. If you get good at creating opportunities and you get really good at converting those opportunities into deals, you will be successful in any market regardless of, of what's going on. You know, what, so let's, let's take that one step further. What's the number one mistake you see investors make? And you might have answered the question for the new investor. It's they get they fall in love with HGTV. <laughs> but but what about a, <laughs> some, what about somebody who's been in the business a little while? What are some what's that one mistake they just seem to make over and over? I think the one I see that they make over and over, and I mentioned it slightly a little bit earlier, is that they just stick with one strategy. Regardless of what the market is, they don't adjust to the market. You know, if they're if they're a flipper, they're just going to keep flipping regardless, and they're just going to try to hammer it out, hammer it out. Regardless of whether the industry or the market is giving them the spreads that they need or not, they're just going to continue doing it instead of stepping back, taking a look at what the market's giving them, and making the proper adjustments. Right. And for the seasoned investor, if you if you make it to your level, are you done making mistakes? Oh, heck no. <laughs> no, no, no. You're constantly learning. So it's just like anything else. You know, the rules change all the time. Uh, the markets change all the time. Uh, you learn to be more and more conservative. I think most people that know me would say I'm a very conservative investor. I don't take risks. I don't gamble. Okay. Very, very conservative. But that's because I think the more you do this, the more conservative you become because you see anything and everything that can happen. You, you see the downside enough where every time it happens, you make sure that never happens again. Yeah, I could, I could see where having two or three or four transactions where you just have this massive return, things go great, you all of a sudden you start thinking, oh, this is the way it's going to be, and that's not the case, right? Exactly, and I see that all the time, especially when the market, like back in 2011, where you could, you could walk outside and trip over a fix and flip and be successful at it and make a lot of money. It was so easy. Anybody could do it, but then obviously you try to use that same strategy today, you're, you are toast. It is not 2011 anymore. Right. So let's let's talk about 2016 for you right now. I know um, you you know you're busy here, but you we were talking. You've also got a little operation up and going in Indiana. So talk about what you're doing there and how do you manage two states at once? 
Yes, I do have a full investing business going on in Indiana. And the reason for that is because I'm, I'm most interested in cash flow. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things that I preach every single month at, at the network group that I run is that uh, you need to understand what investing is. And investing, if you look up the definition of investing, it basically means you invest your money and you get a return on the money. It's passive income. That's what everybody got out of this business for is passive income, and that's all I really care about. So for anybody and everybody that does the fix and flips and the wholesaling, I know the, the business and the industry calls them investors, but in my opinion, that's a big myth. You're not investing. Either you have a job or you have a business, and you, you need to run it accordingly. So my entire business is based on investing, and that's what took me to Indiana ultimately is I realized that I could not buy rental properties here and get the returns that I really want from a cash flow point of view. So Phoenix is great from appreciation point of view, but strictly from an ROI return on cash flow, it is not a really good market in my opinion. And so I decided that I needed to go into the Midwest to find a better return on the market. I actually originally ended up in Missouri, and the only reason I ended up there is because I had a friend that I'd known for many years, him and his wife and his kids, and they owned a real estate company, and he was a big-time REO broker, so he got all the bank foreclosed properties, and he owned a property management company. So when I started doing some research, and he told me how cheap the properties were, and uh, you do their, figure out the returns, the returns were literally triple what I could get here in Phoenix. And so why would I invest here for a cash flow property when I can go there and get three times the return? And so I ended up in Missouri. Unfortunately, that ended up being a disaster uh, because of multiple multitude of reasons and one of the reasons was I discovered and had to learn the difference between what a landlord friendly state is and what a non-landlord friendly state is. Oh boy. Uh, having, yeah, I learned that, yeah, I, I learned that lesson. Those are one of the mistakes you don't make again. So I always assumed that all the states across the country, I guess, was similar to Arizona, whereas if someone doesn't pay rent, you can evict them in three weeks and get them out of the property. Well, what I discovered is in Missouri, it's more like a two-month process, and right. it, it was just nasty. So then I decided, once Missouri was a disaster, then I decided, you know what, I need to find a state, again, in the Midwest, where I can get those same type of returns. However, I needed to be in a landlord-friendly state, and I discovered there's only six of them in the country, and Indiana was one of them. So that's how I ended up in Indiana. And so what, what kind of operation do you have going there now? Okay, Indiana, I have rental properties there. I do flips there. I have a team on the ground that I do. I do flips and properties there in Indiana. And I just within the last 60 days, I did open up with a business partner there. I opened up a property management company to manage the rentals there. Okay. And are you in Indianapolis or, some, or other cities there? Where do you... Oh, I'm 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 farther. I'm up in the northwest area, so I'm up in Lake County area. Like I've had you here like about a half an hour, Greg. Because I'm going to give you my final question that I give everyone um, on the podcast, and and that is, if what one piece of advice would you give a realtor just getting started in the business? Well, my answer would actually be a word that's in your question, and that word is business. I think the most important thing is you need to understand that it is a business. It's not a job. It's not a part-time business. One thing that I learned for that short period of time that I was a real estate agent, uh, I was 
very fortunate because of my background. I learned systems. I understood how to run business. So within you know my first year in the business, my first full calendar year in the business, I did over 100 transactions, 114 to be specific, my first full calendar year in the business. And so because I ran it like a business. And as I brought other agents in to work for me going forward for that short period of time, what I found out is that unfortunately most agents come into this industry because they want the freedom. But what I learned and discovered is that that very freedom is what drowns them because they don't have the discipline in order to do what they need to do. They don't treat it like a business. And because of that, they're just kind of waffle around and, and they're not successful. So I guess to make a long, long answer short, I my answer would be to treat it like a business. You need to understand that you got to have marketing in place to generate the opportunities. You got to have systems in place in order to, you know, to list those houses. You got to have systems in place in order to sell those houses. You got to have systems in place in order to go through the escrow. And it, there's a lot of work to put all those systems in place. But once you do, the results are amazing. Greg, if someone listening to this podcast wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to uh, get a hold of you? Uh, they can do it either by email. They can just email me at my name. It's uh, Greg Slaughter at Cox.net. Or they could uh, reach me at my cell phone as well. That would be fine. 602-644-1286. Greg, thank you so much for taking time today on the Real Estate Sessions podcast. I, I can't tell you how exciting it is to have this information out there for people to listen to. And I guarantee you there are going to be people reaching out to talk to you about what, what you know and how they can uh, work <laughs> get some more information from you. So thank you so much for, for sharing your, your information today. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to The Real Estate Sessions with Bill Risser of Chicago Title, Arizona. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and tell your friends about The Real Estate Sessions as new episodes are published weekly.